to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is October 30, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice and ideas to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from the reading for today's discussion on the Cratylus, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on any of these or the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today, as we launch the third season of discussions on this podcast, we'll begin to examine the first part of Plato's Cratylus, to Stephanus reference 400c. The subject of this fascinating dialogue is the origin of the names that we apply to things and their meaning that evolves in language over time. A key to appreciate the very broad scope of this dialogue is the meaning of the word things, which I thought we could start with, as it has some important connections to Plato's Parmenides, which we covered at the end of Season 2. Recall that the Parmenides began with an attempt to differentiate the positions of the characters Zeno and Parmenides. Zeno stated that things are not many, because if they were many, then they would be both like and unlike, which is impossible. Parmenides held that all is one, because all things partake of oneness, and therefore, he concluded, if the one is not, nothing is. So what do we understand by the word thing? And how do we differentiate one thing from another in order to label each thing with a name? When we look at the definitions of thing, I think we'll understand how broad both the Parmenides and Cradlus really are in their scope, so broad that they address the limitless potential of the mind. It's for this reason that I made the claim in our last group discussion in June that Plato's purpose in the Parmenides was that we examine our mind's system of perception in time. I'd extend that same purpose to the Cratylus. So if our perception operates by identifying differences, because there is no contrast in sameness, then we might appreciate Socrates' position that the name of a thing is the tool that we use to divide being in accordance with nature. Being, as we learn from the Timaeus, is Plato's word for the eternal, changeless state that exists in the past and future, but not in the present, because the present is in a constantly changing state of becoming. Not everyone is capable of making a tool, Socrates points out, because it requires craft, skill, and knowledge. How do we acquire knowledge of names that differentiate things? The debate in the Cratylus between the title character and Hermogenes is whether names originate in nature or by human convention. The naturalist argument says that the names we use to differentiate things arise from a singular, universal, changeless state of being of each thing which is to say, in Platonic terms, according to the form of each thing. The conventionalist view is that the meaning of each word derives from and changes with its human usage, differing from one community to another with no consistency necessary from past to present to future. The conventionalist view might remind us of the position of the sophist Protagoras, who held that man is the measure of things, as Plato wrote in the Theotetus that we covered in season one. Are we equipped to measure things accurately through time? Socrates puts this question in the Cratylus when he asks, if it is the truth that things are for each person as he believes them to be, how is it possible for one person to be wise and another foolish? It's a question that still resonates 2,400 years later. 
What do we think of the conventionalist and naturalist positions? Does our differentiation of one thing from another thing depend on time and place, or is the differentiation of things rooted in universal forms? The forms appear throughout Plato's dialogues, and in the first episode of this season, I provide some perspectives on the five key forms that Plato described in the Sophist, which are that which is, the same, the different, change, and rest. That episode also provides a review of some of the other key points that we covered in the first 29 episodes of this podcast. It recalls Socrates' statement in the Phaedo that all things come to be in opposites, which might remind us of Parmenides' admonition that it is unthinkable that that which is not can refer to a negation of the being of a thing. We could consider both of these points in relation to our system of perception and apply them in the context of the Cratylus. So why is it important to discuss the origin of names of things, and why does it matter which of the naturalist or conventionalist view is correct? In the introductory episode for this season, I propose that the naming of things has a particular and pressing technological importance now that we have powerful tools like GPT-3 technology that can simulate human speech and writing quite realistically. Further, we continue to witness increasingly poisonous conflicts about the meaning of particular words, like fact and democracy, with very real consequences to the lives of millions. Can we in fact establish a meaning for any name without relating it to other names? As Parmenides states in Plato's dialogue of the same name, everything is surely related to everything as follows. Either it is the same or different, or if it is not the same or different, it would be related as part to whole or as whole to part. Our perception of reality, where do we draw the line between knowledge of a thing, opinion, or belief of a thing, and mere perception of a thing? The question might remind us of the divided line from Plato's Republic, consisting of unequal divisions between perception, belief, opinion, and knowledge. Socrates stated that knowledge can arise only after a series of processes, beginning with perception, followed by belief, then with the application of reason turning into opinion, and finally, with more reason and reflection, arriving at knowledge. The nature of our knowledge of things is central to Plato's Cratylus, and it's why I wanted to start our discussion by playing a short clip from a Lex Friedman podcast in which he interviews world-renowned mathematical physicist Sir Roger Penrose. In this, Penrose's description of knowledge, or intelligence is another word we might use for it, seems quite similar to Plato's divided line, and both he and the host admit to human difficulties in defining things. It might make us wonder how our machines will differentiate one thing from another, if their human programmers are not perfectly capable of doing so. Are we feeding the machines imperfect or conflicting definitions? And how will we provide them with a logic to sort out the differences? How will our historical record be understood as future generations look back and try to understand the causes and effects of the meanings that we apply to things? More mysterious. And how does the brain somehow orchestrate all these individual OR processes into a genuous, genuine, genuine conscious experience. And it, and it might be something that's beautifully simple, but we're in, completely in the dark about. Yeah, I think at the moment where it's that's the thing. You know, we happily put the word "orc" down there to say orchestrated, <laughs> but that's even more unclear what that really means. Yeah, just like the, the word "material," orchestrated. <laughs> yes. Uh, who knows? Yes. And we've been dancing a little bit between the word intelligence or understanding and consciousness. Do you yes. kind of see those 
as sitting yeah. in the same space of mystery as we've yeah, been so you see, I tend to say you have understanding and intelligence and awareness. And somehow understanding is in the middle of it, you see. It's, I like to say, uh, could you say of an entity that is actually intelligent if it doesn't have the quality of understanding? I'm using terms I don't even know how to define. But who cares? I'm they're just relating they're, they're somewhat poetic, so I somehow understand them. Yes. That's why we don't... <laughs> exactly. But they're not mathematical in nature. Yes, you see, I, as a mathematician, I don't know how to define any of them, but at least I can point to the connections. So the idea is, intelligence is something which I believe needs understanding, otherwise you wouldn't say it's really intelligence. And understanding needs awareness. Otherwise, you wouldn't really say it's understanding. Do you say of an entity that understands something, unless it's really aware of it, in our normal usage? So there's a three sort of awareness, understanding, and intelligence. And I just tend to concentrate on understanding because that's where I can say something. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the Gödel theorem, things like that. But the, it, what, what does it mean to be? perceive the color blue or something. I mean, I'm the foggiest. That's a much more difficult question. I mean, is it the same if I see a color blue and you see it? Or if you're somebody with what this this condition, what is it called? Um, or where you assign uh, you like a sound up. to a, to a yeah, color. Yeah, that's that right. Of... You get colors and sounds mixed up. <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. I mean, that, an interesting subject. I mean, yeah. But from the physics perspective, from the fundamentals perspective, we don't I think we're way off having much understanding what's going on there. Okay, well, thanks for listening to that little bit there. It was, um, I thought that was interesting. So there, Roger Penrose was, uh, the, the whole thesis of a book that he wrote was that the brain is not a computational device. And so there he was talking about awareness, understanding, and meaning, that process, with, which I thought really related to Plato's Republic in that uh, divided line that I mentioned in the introduction. And so we have here today a dialogue, the Cratylus, which talks about the origin of the names that we use for things, and the names being the tools that we use to differentiate one thing from another. And so as I said in the introduction, I thought we might start with the definition of the word things, or at least to get a sense of what we understand by the meaning of things, which is, I think, quite broad. I thought it was interesting to look at the Oxford English Dictionary back in 1976. They defined thing as whatever is or may be an object of thought, which is very broad. You know, an object of thought, I mean, what limitation is there to thought? So an object of thought really could be anything without limitation. Then we had a 1982 Houghton Mifflin Canadian Dictionary of the English Language, kind of the same type of definition. A thing is whatever can be perceived, known, or thought to have a separate existence an entity, or the real substance of that which is indicated as distinguished from its appearances or from the name, word, or symbol denoting it. And then we get to the Oxford English Dictionary of 2022, which provides now 18 definitions on the basis of human usage in different contexts. And so it provides two meanings that they say apply more in a philosophical context, where we had a very definite, a very broad definition applied back in the 1976 dictionary to now where we're 
differentiating definitions based on human usage. And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe we can talk about this as whether we think this is moving from a kind of naturalist perspective of the origin of a name to now a more conventionalist uh, approach to, to meaning. So the Oxford English Dictionary 2022 the two philosophical contexts. The first is a thing as it is independently from human modes of perception and thought, a noumenon, or more generally, a thing distinguishable as an entity in its own right. Or the second, which it says chiefly is a philosophical definition, that which has separate or individual existence, for example, as distinct on the one hand from the totality of being, on the other from attributes or qualities. So I'm just wondering what we think of this and just relating this to the importance of this dialogue, you know, what, what are people's perceptions of what this means? Michael, I see your hand is raised. What do you think? I do notice that not only are these dictionaries separated by time, but they're also separated by company or at least edition. For mm. instance, the two Oxford English dictionaries, one is the concise version, which you would expect to get the simplest definition. Mm -hmm. And the 2022 version you mentioned appears to be the whole version, which gives the more complicated version going into various definitions. Mm -hmm. So that's worth considering in terms of the definition. Also, it's worth noting, just for my part, that the Oxford English Dictionary actually uses the word thing to define thing. Those are just observations. Um, I'm mm -hmm. not a professional historian. Very good observations. I mean, I, I find generally, you know, when I looked at the older versions of dictionaries and not just the concise version, but more complete versions of the earlier dictionaries, that they tended to give uh, more general definitions, whereas now the Oxford English Dictionary gives very in-depth views of definitions in context. Often they, they avoid now providing general definitions and they provide more specific contextual definitions. And so I was wondering if if that is some sort of evidence of a move in our way of approaching the nature of differences that we we now apply differences to different contexts and, and not generalities. And so so yeah, and thanks for pointing that out. I mean it's definitely, you know, in in the more concise versions of dictionaries, yes, we would find just shortened, more general versions for sure. Uh, but I just do I do did find that to be a general change in approach to defining things that we now moving towards con more contextual uh, approaches. Um, Victor, I saw your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to relate this in, uh, to what was um, to what Penrose was saying, but mm -hmm. start out by saying that in the first definition of Oxford, that it, a thing is an object of thought, a thought can be an object of thought, and the ideas of a thing, of a concrete thing, can also be an object of thought. So we're sort mm -hmm. of lost in the, um, we're lost in a, in a, in a definition that uh, remains within uh, the flux mm -hmm. um, in that first um, uh, definition from Oxford. And so the two words that are the most concrete that are mentioned in the discussion, you know, beyond the discussion of um, intelligence, which requires understanding and understanding, which requires awareness in Penrose's view are material, which Lex Friedman is um, referring to an earlier portion mm -hmm. of their dialogue by using the word material, and then Penrose uh, referring to blue. These are mm -hmm. the two most concrete or would-be concrete ideas. And what 
can be made as an assertion that is not a philosophical one in my view about material, which is, is it's, which is one of the bases of language and relates to the whole problem of being, which for me does not exist. Um, being is a vapor. There's no such thing as being. There's only becoming, but this is not a philosophical view. This is not a Heraclitian view. This is not the view of Cratylus, right? Who says mm -hmm. that one cannot put one's foot in the same river once. There is no thing, no material thing that is material since it is a wave particle and it can pass through the double slit and even a macromolecule hmm. with over 1800 times the mass of a hydrogen atom can pass through the double slit. We now know this uh, and we've now imaged particles and they're not particles, they are waves. We did this recently in the last year with um, electron beam. So nothing that is that we call matter or substance is either material or substantial. Okay, that's, that is, that's an illusion of the senses. And then blue. Blue, well, you have this problem with blue. It's um, what is blue to anyone is blue and even idea which exists in all language is what is, if the idea blue can be translated from another language, is it, does it really in any way coincide with our notion of blue? Does mm -hmm. the blue contain a little bit of red in there? It has a, it is a violet, like blue, a somewhat violet like blue, does it contain a tiny bit of yellow and therefore it is a bluish green or a greenish blue? You get into this realm where the names do not name the things, mm -hmm. which is what this whole dialogue is about. Uh, do the names name the things or do they not? Mm -hmm. um, are they merely by convention or is there some naturalistic relationship between them? I think they're mm -hmm. purely, almost purely conventional. I think there's mm -hmm. some onomatopoeic uh, relationship in the beginning in some of the initial words, but near almost none of the words have any naturalistic relation to mm -hmm. um, to anything. Well, interesting there, and you spoke about the um, you spoke about quantum reality of things, or the, the what we think is a quantum reality. And I think actually in the next episode, I might actually play more of that interview in which uh, Penrose does talk about the nature of quantum reality, because I think it actually does relate to what we what you just said and and i think relates very much to to what we talk about in this uh in this dialogue so something that we can definitely continue to consider because we're learning a lot more about the nature of reality and i think you know certainly the importance of this dialogue i did mention this gpt3 technology that we have now maybe i'll just put that up briefly on the screen just this new story, this was in New Scientist magazine back from last year, that Microsoft and chip manufacturer NVIDIA have created a vast artificial intelligence that can mimic human language more convincingly than ever before. Goes on to talk about how this can actually produce realistic sentences, unique sentences. Um, some of these can actually pass academic review, can actually fool reviewers into thinking that they were written by humans. The end of this little clip the, here that I have on the screen talks about 87% accuracy and the ability of the software to predict the last words of sentences. So we have this situation now where our machines are able to simulate reality and simulate our speech and the way we use speech and language. And, you know, I asked in the introduction, when we have words that we don't even agree on how to define, and, you know, an example I think I would use there is democracy, which we can maybe talk about in the ne next episode, is that how will we tell our machines, how will we program our, our machines to deal with these differences in definitions? So I think it's it's an important thing now with the power of technology and really the question of what is reality 
how we're relating to our machines in terms of teaching them what we do and how we approach reality, but also then how to deal with the differences. So thank you for that comment. Darren, I see your hand is up. So I just want to respond to something that uh, Victor brought up, which is regarding the conventionalistic nature of language. And I think there are many obvious ways in which language is conventional. Victor says he subscribes to this theory and it's almost hard to deny that language is conventional in many ways. And we see this in the dialogue itself, of course. I mean, Hermogenes does a good job presenting the theory in a very succinct way. Uh, and of course, we see a lot of examples acknowledged even in the reading today, multiple times that different cultures use different words to designate things. So that seems to be decisive for the conventionalist theory, right? Mm -hmm. but, the, but the interesting thing about this dialogue, though, is that in the first series of arguments, in the first, like, I don't know, this was like first 10 pages, maybe, where when Socrates enters the picture, so this is Socrates' conclusion after this first stretch. So this is the first nine pages of the dialogue. So he concludes here, it follows that the giving of names can't be as inconsequential a matter as you think, Hermogenes, nor can it be the work of an inconsequential or chance person. So Cratylus is right in saying that things have natural names and that not everyone is a craftsman of names, but only someone who looks to the natural name of each thing and is able to put its form into letters and syllables. So there is something very obvious about a conventionalist understanding of language and words. But here, Socrates concludes, he says right out loud that their argument above has concluded that the naturalistic theory is right. And then, you know, we proceed to go to a discussion of various words and names and how that theory can be demonstrated through various words. So if we think a conventionalist theory is right, then Socrates must have gone wrong somewhere. So it, I think it'll be interesting to maybe look at what has gone wrong or might have gone wrong. I mean, Socrates at various points also says, you know, watch out, maybe I'm tricking you. So maybe he's mm -hmm. deliberately doing this. But I think there's another possibility is that in this argument leading up to this conclusion, there is a lot of comparison with the arts and tools and various kinds of skills and how in order to do those things, in order to be successful, like there's example of cutting, the example of, I don't know, there's various things. What else do they talk about? Mm -hmm. Like uh, weaving, weaving is another one. Yeah. Or I think shipbuilding comes up too at one point. Yeah. He, Plato loves this an the analogy of shipbuilding for everything. <laughs> <laughs> that in order to do all these things well or do them at all, you need to know about the nature of the thing you're working on and the thing you're using. I won't go into I won't go into details right now, obviously. Then then the question he poses halfway through this chain of argument is, well, isn't speaking a kind of action? Isn't speaking a kind of doing, just like all those other things? In order to do those things well, like cutting or building a ship or whatever, you need to know the nature of, you know, the world and which you're trying to operate on. And you need to know the nature of the tools, the real nature, not just you can't just make things up. Your ship will your ship will sink if you do that. So Socrates poses this question. Well, he doesn't pose a question. He goes on and, and follows this chain of argument and says, well, isn't language the same way? Because language, like when we're speaking, that's a kind of action. So doesn't it need some reference to the truth, both in the tools, such as the words, and also the world, its relation to the world. So 
Okay, so I, I'm I'm done. Sorry, that was, that was long. But I guess the the in sum, it's conventionalist theory. Lot seems to be going for it just intuitively. But then Socrates actually comes out for the naturalistic theory here. So what in the world is going on? Yeah, no, good point. And and especially because now I think we do experience changing meanings of words over time. And so maybe it's more intuitive to us that there is some sort of natural or conventionalist nature of of language that you know it depends on how we use it at what time and i think the the general view of plato that there's forms of things that are universal in a state of being that's uh, unchanging timeless and all of that is controversial it's it's certainly not universally accepted so then this is this becomes controversial if there's a naturalist position then that means that there is a universal basis of thing which is we think of the most general definition and uh, an object of thought, you know, that distinguishes one object of thought from another object of thought. Whereas the conventionalist would say that it's it depends on the time and place, and that those things are ever changing or in flux, which I think is maybe the word that Victor used. So yeah, it's an important point. And and um, we'll go to J.K. But I will put on the screen actually because you you raised it, Darren. There's a quote that I selected as one of the three themes. I'll put on the screen the idea of the tools, which is at 388a to 389a. I'll put that on the screen. And then maybe we can read that together just to kind of get our feet wet with the dialogue. So while I do that, we'll go to JK. All those definitions um, that you gave, they all uh, pretty much made the point that it is a dualistic, the kind of what's going on is the, the dualism between the thing and the language or whatever thought is, right? Um, mm. And that uh, it raises the question whether we are really understanding reality of the thing. Because in that one, uh, the uh, most recent definition, they just mentioned that the, the thing is the noumena. That's Kant's uh, noumena, which is that which you cannot know in itself. So it's raising the question whether we are, the thought is really understanding reality. And then maybe that's what's also going on in the credulous, that the question of understanding reality does it require a understanding of the forms or, or not? Or is it just a kind of just adapting to the empirical experiences? So I, I think that's interesting. Interesting, yes, in, indeed. And, and you use the word dualism. I think you said dualism of thing and language, which was an interesting way to put it. And I wonder if that relates to the earlier comment about a thought can be an object of thought. And when you get in, maybe we get into this kind of recursion and never knowing where a thought ends and would the form of a thing therefore help to know where the thought ends where where we draw the dividing line between knowledge of one thing and another thing so i put that out there as a question based on what you said jk and, and i think what the earlier comment was i don't know if we would have any volunteers to read either of these two parts or i can read them if nobody else wants to volunteer uh, there's socrates and hermogenes here this is 388A to 389A. I'm happy to do it, or if Michael wants to, Michael can do it. Okay. All right. Why don't we take Michael, if if you're interested? Would you take Socrates or Hermogenes? I'll take Socrates. All right. Why don't you take Socrates and uh, maybe, Darren, you could take Hermogenes. Socrates, and suppose I ask, what sort of tool is a shuttle? Isn't the answer one we weave with? Yes. What do we do when we weave? Don't we divide the warp and woof that are mixed together? Yes. Would you answer in the same way about drills and other tools? 
Certainly. And you'd also answer in the same way about names, since they are tools. What do we do when we name? I don't know what to answer. Don't we instruct each other, that is to say, divide things according to their nature? Certainly. So just as a shuttle is a tool for dividing warp and woof, a name is a tool for giving instruction, that is to say, for dividing being. Yes. Isn't a shuttle a weaver's tool? Of course. So a weaver will use shuttles well. And to use a shuttle well is to use it as a weaver does. By the same token, an instructor will use names well. And to use a name well is to use it as an instructor does. Yes. When a weaver uses a shuttle well, whose product is he using? Carpenters. Is everyone a carpenter or only those who possess the craft of carpentry? Only those who possess the craft. And whose product does a driller use well when he uses a tool? When he uses a drill. Uh, a blacksmith. And is everyone a blacksmith or only those who possess the craft? Only those who possess the craft. Good. So whose product does an instructor use when he uses a name? I don't know. Can you at least tell me this? Who or what provides us with the names we use? I don't know that either. Don't you think that rules provide us with them? I suppose they do. So when an instructor uses a name, He's using the product of a rule setter. I believe he is. Do you think that every name is a rule setter or only the one who possesses the craft? Only the one who possesses the craft. So it follows that it isn't every man who can give names, Hermogenes, but only a name maker. And he, it seems, is a rule setter the kind of craftsman most rarely found among human beings. I suppose so. Well, thank you both for, for reading that. It was a rather long selection, but I thought it was useful to illustrate a few things. So thanks, uh, Michael and Darren. And maybe we can go back to a few things in here to highlight. First of all, I wanted to talk about this idea of instructing each other. So by the same token, an instructor will use names well, and to use a name well is to use it as an instructor does. And the idea here is that we're instructing each other with the names that we apply to things. And I just wanted to see if there was some accepted understanding of what he's saying here with that idea of instruction. To me, it, it means that our souls are talking to each other and expressing or exchanging, first of all, they're composing complex ideas. And then they're exchanging complex ideas using names uh, or words to describe things. That's what I understand by the use of the word instruction and instructor there. Maybe I'll get some thoughts on that, but also wanted to just highlight this idea here of dividing things according to their nature and the statement that a name is a tool for giving instruction, that is to say, for dividing being. And I wanted to just 
remind the history of that word being in terms of the way Plato uses it relates to Timaeus and particularly Timaeus 28a where that distinction between being and becoming is made. So in Plato's concept, being is that universal changeless state which is incapable of increase or decrease, it just always is. It's the state that exists in the past and the future, but not in the present. The present is not in a state of being, it's in a state of becoming. The present is always changing. And, you know, I think if modern physics might talk about the present as being in a constant state of change that ends up in entropy, it goes from maximum order to maximum disorder. And so that's that constant process of change or becoming in the present, whereas being is that just eternal state that always exists. And in the Platonic concept, I think the, the form would exist in the state of being. And so here he's, I think he's saying that it's the being, it, it's the, the timeless thing that we are trying to divide it can't be divided in itself. We're dividing it in the present, but that's what we're trying to divide is, is find that timeless form that we're trying to distinguish one from the other. Um, so I just wanted to raise those two points and see what people thought about that. JK, your thoughts? Brings to mind what, uh, the question, uh, what the, um, the rule setter, right? The being that has the rules to set, that would not be in the realm of becoming, right? That would be in the realm of being. Right. Yeah, it, it, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are no humans, I don't think, in Plato's context of the realm of being. There are no humans in the realm of being. And so whether there is some entity in the realm of being that establishes these, or whether there's some other method by which rules are established. I think certainly there's talk about how rules are established by those with knowledge and skill, which is in the second part of what we read, you know, the idea that a carpenter makes a tool and the user of that tool knows how good the tool is. And so establishing tools and using the tools is kind of a two-part process, it requires both the setter and the user. Maybe that's part of it. So you're saying that the, uh, the root setter is, uh, comes about uh, by way of the interaction between being and becoming? Yeah, I think maybe that's that's part of what I get from this. It, it requires some interaction, and certainly in the way that I have attempted to define the forms, which was in the first episode of the season, the, the short version that I posted two weeks ago, that the mind, in my perspective, exists in that state of being, in that eternal state of being. And then we physically are in the present, so we're physically in the state of becoming, but somehow we're interacting through the mind with that state of being, if that makes sense. Of course, that state of being is never described by Plato, right? Uh, he's, right. Doesn't he resort to myth as that ultimate mm -hmm. uh, state of being? Yeah, I think you, you raise a good point there, myth or, or analogy, because I think he would say that it, it's nearly impossible or, or perhaps impossible to understand fully the, the realm of being because that's timeless. And so instead, I think, you know, the idea that we understand things by analogy is, is a common way that Plato uses to explain those complex ideas. Thank you for raising those points. I think those are good questions and certainly ones that we can explore. We have a few people with hands up. I go to Eva, then Victor, and then Jane. Eva. Thank you. If I'm using a tool and if I'm curious to, of course, I should know the name of that tool. I want to, and I want to trust deep inside that a person who has a connection with that tool named that tool. 
So I think when naming objects, it is important that people who used and connected with that object or area name that object. And I think that's when things stay between generations. A good example would be the word takne. It represents art, it re represents the skill. So someone using some place for their art and uh, they decided to name this kind of either bowl or kind of like a workplace as takne. And now the meaning is super flexible, I think, because it was connected to the skill and the soul of the group of people maybe who named it. So I'm curious to discover how we connect, how we can more connect faster and stronger with the names that were given by the people who have the skill for that tool. Well, thank you. That That's yeah. an excellent question, actually. The, the idea of if the name is given by the user, I think you're saying, Eva, that it sticks in the mind longer or it, it has more permanence if it's given by the user? Yeah, exactly. And the user's skill, and uh, mm -hmm. I want to include soul here too, and the need of mm -hmm. that person or group. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. Let, let's Let's explore that. Let's go to Victor and then Jane. I don't know, Victor, if you have any thoughts on what Eva just said or other thoughts. Um, I actually had other thoughts. So mm -hmm. do you want me go, to? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So this whole notion of, of being is highly problematic. It's the origin, really, of all, of all metaphysics. You know, Hegel refers to it as the indeterminate immediate. And I can't even recall who refers to it as a vapor. That is a, um, a term I use to describe being. So my point with B is, is that there's no such thing as a fixed rule, and there's no such thing as a rule setter. The, the, the most that you could say is, is that there's a series of fluid rule setters who are working in the flux of language. You know, Language itself is evolving historically. Language itself is borrowing from other languages. You know, the same language will alter the phonemes in the same word that it uses three or four centuries afterward. It'll be the same word, but it will have gone through a phonetic transformation. Mm -hmm. uh, the rules for that were first proposed in the in the 19th century. So there's no rule setter. There's no there's no expertise on the part of the rule setter that creates the word. Quite often, the first word that anyone uses in any language is mama. And it's a variation on that. It's mm -mm, just the two M sounds, or there's a vowel after it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it is the lips that are around the breast of the mother, the sound that the lips are making of pleasure, taking pleasure in sucking and in receiving the milk. Mama there's no rule setter there. There's an unconscious use of phonetic possibility that actually describes to a certain degree uh, the mother and the mammary gland, right? Mama, right? You know, and then you have the onomatopoeic words like purr and bark and thwack and smack. 
which suggest to us don't imitate perfectly, but to a certain degree imitate the sound that they're seeking to evoke, right? But there's mm -hmm. no perfect imitation and there's no rule setter in the beginning. And in fact, um, even the word which was proposed by one person by invention, you know, within a day might have altered in the uh, hunting and gathering group that first invented that word, right? In the same day, it might have altered. So there's no, there's no rule setter or name maker. It's a collective enterprise. There is mm -hmm. a tiny bit of imitation, but then the imitation is abandoned mm -hmm. because what you're, what you're moving is to is, it is more and more complex realms of semantics. And the convention consists not so much in the shared acceptance of the word, but the convention exists in the shared semantic fields. When I use the word, I said the word material in the beginning from Lex Friedman, and I use the word blue, right, from Roger Penrose. To mm -hmm. a certain degree, when I use the word material, when I use the word blue, our, my semantic field coincides with yours, James, mm -hmm. there's two circles and they intersect. They don't intersect perfectly, but that allows me to convey an idea that you understand in part. There's mm -hmm. a shared understanding and by convention, semantic convention, we agree that material in this specific phrase, in this specific context of logic or discourse mm -hmm. means this. Right. That's the convention. It's not so much a sound convention, you know, a pure vocal convention. Mm -hmm. It's really a semantic convention, mm -hmm. shared semantic fields. Mm -hmm. So going to the tool, the issue of the tool, there's no way, no one way to make the tool. Uh, there's no one design for the making of the tool. There's a different way to make it. And there's different ways to design it, a drill. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can use a nail as a drill to drill a hole in an object and then remove the nail. And then I can start to develop the idea of a drill that is as a spiral shape. But how long, how much of the drill is mm -hmm. the spiral along most of the length of the drill mm -hmm. or only a tiny little portion at the very beginning? There's no one way to make the tool and there's no one design for the tool. So there is no rule setter. And what you have in the realm of tool making and tool design is a flux. What you have in the realm of semantics is a flux. And what you have in the realm of phonetics is a flux. Well, thanks. You know, you, you raised some very interesting perspectives there, and I think it's well worth discussing. Certainly the example of Mama, I think that you provided was very interesting, one that I hadn't thought about. But certainly in the dialogue, Plato does provide quite a few descriptions of words that have changed over time just because of the way they they work in the mouth and the way it's easier for the mouth to form a particular word by adding a letter or subtracting a letter. And that's an important point. But I think the contention that you make that there is no rule setter, I think that's one that we should discuss and understand what the differences in that perspective are. And certainly you provided some very good thoughts on that. And you know, you're taking the view, I think, that there's a flux. And I'm wondering what others think about that. So thanks. And let, let's explore that perspective. I have Jane and then Darren. Jane. 
I think what I'm going to say is going to overlap and in some sense agree with what was said by uh, already by Victor. Um, so I uh, regarding that there is no one way, there is no one design, and there is no certain rule setter. Um, that is in a way true. And I think um, if we are to look um, at these statements through Plato's lens based on other previous dialogues, um, there is no one way, but probably it could be said that there is the ideal way, which would be represented in some sort of ideal platonic form. And backtracking to the question regarding being, um, to my understanding in the world of Plato, being is the realm of forms. And based on, again, other dialogues by Plato, how is knowledge um, acquired by the mortal human who is tied down to the material world, which is the world of becoming? And that is through, I believe the word is anamnesis, if I'm, perhaps I'm not remembering correctly, but just the concept of remembering. So the soul, when it is brought back to the uh, material world of being, um, it gets a glimpse of this realm of being, which is the realm of forms. And so uh, while it's the soul is on planet Earth, it gets a chance to sort of, if it's wise enough and, and smart enough, it sort of has this sort of partial remembering, which could be seen as the dividing of being. So the, the wise soul remembers this small fragment of the ideal platonic form and gives gives a name for it the best that it can based on the remembering that the soul has done, um, if that makes any sense. Hmm. And I think that another thing that was mentioned uh, about rule setters, in modern philosophy, we find these conceptions of truth being discovered through dialogue. So there are no official limited rule setters, just, I guess, this sort of remembering of the true forms of being can be done through um, genuine dialogue in genuine search of truth or the nature of things. Hmm. That's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I like actually the way you tied the idea of dividing being, which is what we read in this particular section, to the idea of remembering. Because, of course, in the Mino, Socrates says that all knowledge is memory or, or all, all knowledge is recollection. And then he goes on further, as I keep mentioning, to explain that recollection means making the account of the reasons why. And in my view, that's taking back the historical record. So, you know, the reasons why I am here on this podcast now talking to everybody, there's a whole sequence of events that took place that led to this particular point for my particular existence. And that would be my account of the reasons why. And so I think maybe it's an interesting idea that dividing being helps us to establish that account of the reasons why by going back in time to look at the sequence of cause and effect. So that was a that was an interesting idea, and I think we can certainly explore that. So I, I thank you for raising that. And certainly memory is a very important theme that goes through a lot of Plato's dialogues. Um, and certainly what you said about the form being an ideal way as opposed to some sort of preset definition, I guess. You know, the way I see form is kind of the minimum limits of a thought. It's not that the thoughts are prescribed in advance, but once a thought is in place, there's kind of a minimum limit of what constitutes that thought. So I'll throw that out there as, uh, as an idea. So thank you, Jane. And we'll go to Darren. Just maybe after Darren, we can do this one reading. This is the one that I have at the beginning of the notes on whether wisdom exists and if man is a measure of all things. So this is at 386B to 386E, which I'll put on the screen here. So maybe we can move to this one after Darren. Just want to respond to... Um 
Well, there's a lot to respond to that has been brought up, but um, I'll respond specifically to Victor's conventionalistic approach to language. And as I've already you know, acknowledged, I think there's a lot going for it. But I think I feel like Socrates or Plato is trying to dig at something a little bit deeper here. And I'm just trying to like understand myself what that might be, because Socrates does end up adopting the naturalistic theory against Hermogenes. But it seems like something curious is going on because there's a lot of qualifications. There's a lot of like he takes back things and uh, there's a lot of curious things going on throughout the dialogue, which is why I mentioned in the comment in the Toronto group that this dialogue, I think, is like wild. <laughs> um, so regarding uh, the conventionalist approach. So uh, one thing Victor mentioned was that there's no one way to make a tool. So this is interesting because this is exactly so, uh, what the dialogue actually addresses at one point. In the dialogue, in 394a specifically, Socrates says that, oh, I'll just, I'll just read it here. So it's the 394a, he says, because of variation in their syllables, names that are really the same seem different to the initiated. Similarly, a doctor's medicines, which have different colors and perfumes added to them, appear different to us, although they are really the same and appear the same to a doctor, who looks only to their power to cure and isn't disconcerted by the additives. Similarly, someone who knows about names looks to their force or power and isn't disconcerted if a letter is added, transposed, or subtracted, or even if the force a name possesses is embodied in different letters altogether. And he gives, and he gives examples of how words are just totally different, can mm -hmm. still save the same purpose as a tool. So. Plato or Socrates acknowledges this, of course, what's important for them is that regardless of their different ways these tools might be manifested, whether it's a shipbuilder, the carpenters, or the doctors, or here, the supposedly the uh, rule setters, because they are tools and because they need to be effective, at least for the carpenter's case and in the med medicine case, Clearly, it can't be conventionalistic. Like the tools clearly have to have something to do with things as they are. Forget about the forms, forget metaphysics. We're just talking practically speaking here. Although people seem to ignore this for whatever reason, but Plato's arguments almost always start at these very practical things that we do, these uh, uh, technical arts. Whether you talk about justice or hear his language, he, start, he often likes to start here. So when we're actually trying to be successful and act well and act successfully in the world, you do sort of want it to conform in nature and you don't just want to like make up things. I think the interesting question here then is if language is a kind of tool, then why isn't there, assuming the conventionalist theory is right, then why, why does the analogy between those other actions or purposes, why does the analogy break down here? Or, does it, or maybe it doesn't break down. In which case, maybe there is something to be said for a naturalistic theory of uh, words. I'll just raise one question here. I won't get into this now, but I think it would be interesting to, so where James left off the last thing we read, so maybe later on in the meeting, it would be interesting to continue from that because the um, story doesn't end with the real setter, right? It goes on and apparently someone has to supervise this real setter. <laughs> and there's a series of really interesting arguments about this. So for instance, a dialectician, we find out it's the person who asks questions and knows how, to, knows how to ask questions or answer them, who has to supervise the rule setter and so on. So I think it might be interesting to read some of that and see what people think, because mm -hmm. there's, there's more to be said for the rule setter. That's a, a great point. Thank you for that, Darren. And in fact, 
maybe I'll go to that reading now instead of doing the one that I was thinking of doing, because I think you, you raise a good point. This is 390A to E, which I have on the screen here now. And this talks about the need to ask questions. So that's the part that you just mentioned. So yeah, you raise a number of interesting points there, the idea of practicality uh, in naming. And I think maybe that recalls what Eva said earlier about maybe the, the user helping to establish the name of a thing so that there's a connection between the use and the name. And that may be just a practical thing in our understanding the purpose of the thing or the use of the thing. And also maybe a little bit of what Victor was talking about in terms of actually the names actually working well in the mouth as we express them, as we, as we speak them. Um, so those are maybe important points there that are worth considering. So maybe we'll go to this part of the reading then, 390A to E. I don't know if we have any volunteers to read this or I can read it. Michael, do you care to do Socrates or Hermogenes? I did Socrates last time, so right. let me do Hermogenes this time. All right, perfect. Thank you. Well, maybe I'll do Socrates then. So, so we'll start this uh, again, 398E. So I'll start with Socrates. Don't you evaluate Greek and foreign rule setters in the same way? Provided they give each thing the form of name suited to it, no matter what syllables it is embodied in, they are equally good rule setters, whether they are in Greece or abroad. Certainly. Now, who is likely to know whether the appropriate form of shuttle is present in any given bit of wood? A carpenter who makes it or a weaver who uses it? In all likelihood, Socrates, it is the one who uses it. So who uses what a lyre maker produces? Isn't he the one who would know best how to supervise the manufacture of lyres and would also know whether what has been made has been made well or not? Certainly. What is that? A lyre player. And who will supervise a shipbuilder? A ship's captain. And who can best supervise the work of a rule setter, whether here or abroad, and judge its products? Isn't it whoever will use them? Yes. And isn't that the person who knows how to ask questions? Certainly. And he also knows how to answer them? Yes. And what would you call someone who knows how to ask and answer questions? Wouldn't you call him a dialectician? Yes, I would. So it's the work of a carpenter to make a rudder, and if the rudder is to be a fine one, a ship captain must supervise him. Evidently. But it's the work of a rule setter, it seems, to make a name. And if names are to be given well, a dialectician must supervise him. That's right. It follows that the giving of names can't be as inconsequential a matter as you think, Hermogenes, nor can it be the work of an inconsequential or chance person. So Cradlus is right in saying that things have natural names, and that not everyone is a craftsman of names, but only someone who looks to the natural name of each thing and is able to put its form into letters and symbols. So thank you again, Michael, for helping to read that and wondering, I guess, what people think about that particular part of the reading and the idea of being able to ask questions and know, knowing how to answer them and the idea of supervising the rule setting process. So Jeff, welcome, and I see your hand is up. We'll start with Jeff and then Darren. Thank you, Darren, for pointing out that section, because that's the one, although I didn't know what the numbers were, <laughs> that I was most interested. I think that's where things go off the rails, actually, after that. Meaning starts with, with use, right? We use it. And so then here, and this just in this exact section that you just read, is where he turns it around and says, well, there's got to be an expert for this, a, a dialectician, it's called here. But isn't that really just a fancy word for a philosopher? 
Uh, <laughs> we, we, someone makes the rules and then someone follows them. No, the rules come after the practices have been established. There's there's a whole upside down thing going on right exactly mm -hmm. in that passage. People want to see if they can see that. <laughs> it's like you basically you figure out how you do something, then you do it, and then you if you're usually if you're prompted to you 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 describe what you're doing, and that's when the rules come up. They're always post facto. That's a really inter interesting observation and maybe goes back again to what Eva said earlier about the use needing to be established before the name can be set. That's it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's helpful. And I, I, I thank you for that and, and to Darren for calling into uh, to the need to, to review this section in conjunction with the last one that we just read. So thank you, Jeff. And, and we'll move to Darren and then Jose and then Michael. Okay, so I think I have, <laughs> have like four interconnected thoughts. I'm gonna try to like get them all out coherently. I don't know, I'll, pro I'll probably forget the fourth one by the time we get there. But anyway, to me, it's so interesting that he talks about the person who, who knows how to ask questions and knows how to answer them. There's so many wacky things really going on in this throughout this first 20 pages we read today. And this is one of them, I think, because it's very meta here because clearly he's saying this while he is asking questions and answering questions. So, I mean, of course, Jeff already flagged this when he, when he said the um, dialectician is just a fancy word for philosopher. Although I don't, I, I don't think that precludes the idea of, you know, language as still a kind of tool that is being used somehow rather than necessary to like represent. I, I still think we can still understand this as a kind of use of language prior to this, we saw that one of the uses is to instruct, which is the passage that James had us read earlier. So I, I, I don't think that like, just because we're suddenly turned to the philosopher, the dialectician, it, it sort of precludes that aspect. Of course, there's a lot to you know debate about how we define these terms, but okay. So the first thing is the meta-ness going on here. Um, so I think as we read the rest of this dialogue, the next 40 pages, I think it might be worth maybe trying to pay attention to whether if it's a person who knows how to ask questions and answer them and Socrates seems to be representative of that then in what sense is he implicitly doing this very work in this dialogue <laughs> as we read it I don't know I'm just posing as a question so it's something I have to think about too okay so okay just two more thoughts I, I just wanted to make a connection regarding this is tying to this idea of supervision. I just want to make a connection with a dialogue we read last uh, season of this uh, series. We, so we read The Sophist in the spring. And so fascinating dialogue, lots intriguing there. But the thing that jumps out in relation to this is that he says there, I remember we discussed this at the time, that there was all these distinctions he was trying to, he was trying to draw in order to say something clearly in The Sophist. And then I think this, this is like near the end of the dialogue. Socrates complains that the distinctions he, he's wanting to make aren't there in the language. He was complaining about the language because there were gaps in the language. He was like, I want to make this distinction, but I can't. So at that point of that dialogue, he made up a word for the distinction he wanted to make. And then he also complains that sometimes our language totally confuses us. And this is, of course, where the sophist comes in. <laughs> because sometimes we have multiple words with multiple meanings or multiple words for one thing or the meanings overlap. And so although in that dialogue, he was trying to draw these very 
very precise and clean distinctions all the way down to the particulars. But at various points, he complains about how our language is just messy. It's filled with holes. It's inconsistent. It's incoherent. He recognizes this. So this ties to the idea of supervision, because perhaps if we do understand a language as a tool for instructing and communicating and um, helping us live well in the world and live successfully in the world, perhaps the naturalism in the dialogue that's being that you know being suggested. This is just one idea. I think the naturalism might just be a total red herring too. I have to read the rest of the dialogue to find out. But uh, but another way we can interpret it is that Plato or Socrates is suggesting that there could be not that language necessarily is like has this naturalistic relation, but it could be, and that. Maybe it's a kind of normative proposal he's making that we should form or mold our language in a way so that it more properly conforms to the way things naturally are. Just like we wanted other tools that we use to build furniture and stuff to conform to the way the world is in order to use them better. Maybe we want our language to be this way. So this idea of supervision comes in because then he's, he's hinting. It's not explicit, right? So he's hinting here that, oh, it's. Uh, it's the philosopher's task to ultimately fix our words in a way, but it doesn't come out here. But I think if we remember, recall from the sophist what he says about language there, and then you bring this idea in here with the, the need for supervision to form our words, I think there could be something, there could mm -hmm. be some story we could put together about this. Mm -hmm. Interesting idea too. And I, I think, you know, the major theme that we're coming out with today is this question of the process of name setting and whether and how names are set and uh, how that's supervised. And I'm just looking ahead to 414E, where Socrates says to Hermogenes, so I think a wise supervisor like yourself will have to keep a close watch to preserve balance and probability which is an interesting idea that he's introduced there, balance and probability, I guess, in, in terms of the meaning of names. So something that we can pursue as we continue to read the dialogue. And you mentioned Sophist confusing language. And this is, you know, maybe to get back to that idea of the technological problem that we have now with some of these powerful new technologies like GPT-3 is can there be distortions in language deliberately introduced by people who program these things or mistakenly introduced? And how do we deal with that? We certainly want to avoid the problems that some sophists can create in terms of what they're trying to get us to think, because we want to be able to think on our own. And certainly language is very important, and, and the objects of thought are very important in that respect. We don't want to have those objects of thought limited. And so this is you know, getting, I think, to the question of whether man is the measure of all things, which is the other reading that thought we could maybe do if we have time. We've got maybe just a little over half an hour left here, so we'll see if we can get there. So thank you for raising those points, and we'll go to Jose and then Michael and Victor. So at the end, at the end, I, I, I have a question. Maybe you can clarify. I have a concept here. He says, so Tertullius is right in saying things have natural gains. And that not everyone is a craftsman of names, but only someone who looks to the natural name of his thing and is able to put its form into letter, letters and symbols. What I am understanding here, and like a, as far as I read the dialogue, is that the craftsman of name has to associate the thing with the form, so has a concept. Mm -hmm. And after that, with this, this concept, this, uh, the form, the idea, he will put this form. He says, is form into letters and symbols. So the, the concept of language is not only here the letters and symbols, it's as well like the concept that the craftsman will associate with the form. 
And now, later in the dialogue, like, well, I, I didn't finish, I didn't read the whole dialogue, only until 400. He started with the etymology, and uh, he started with the etymology of the, the word body and soul and etc. So there are, there are all these concepts that he tried to find a name that associating the concept of the form to some symbols. I, I am right on this, uh, James, or what do you mm -hmm. think? Yeah, yeah, I think you put it well that the what he's saying there is that the craftsman has to associate the name with the form of the thing, which, you know, again, just to go back to the definition of form, which Plato never provides, but I've given some thoughts in the previous episode that I posted, is kind of the minimum limits of a thing. If we had to provide the basic recipe for a thing, what would be the minimum components of that recipe for that thing? That, that explains totally the thing. Right, right. Uh, and then you can you can embellish it. You can add different pieces to the thing, but the thing is still basically the same as long as we know what the basic limits of that thing are. Those basic limits distinguish that thing from any other thing. So, um, so the, the, the concept of the Krasberg language is to have these concepts and to associate the, the fact of putting name is associating this with symbols and letters. Right. So doesn't matter. Yeah, that's doesn't matter different languages. Really, the words itself doesn't matter too much. It's the idea mm -hmm. that these words, somebody right. associated these words. But the right. concept is the same. This is universal. This is yeah. the same in, in, for Greeks, for non-Greeks, for everybody, the concept. Okay. Exactly, yeah. And I think because obviously there's many languages and dialects across the world, and each language will use its own different symbols and combinations of symbols. And so we can't look to the symbols themselves, we have to look at something deeper, I think, because otherwise it'll be impossible to translate from one language to another. I think that's uh, an important point here, for sure, that you, that you uh, call into attention. You mentioned the, the names human soul and body, which I put examples from the, the text here at the end of this particular page. You know, the word human, uh, just to, to give an example of how words are being defined or names are being defined here at 399C, Socrates says, the name human signifies that the other animals do not investigate or reason about anything they see, nor do they observe anything closely, but a human being no sooner sees something, that is to say, opope, and I think I don't know if I'm pronouncing the Greek correctly there, than he observes it closely and reasons about it. Hence, human beings alone among the animals are correctly called anthropos, one who observes closely what he has seen, anthron ha opope. And we see there an example of a word anthropos, which has been translated into English as anthropomorphic or versions of that. Uh, and I just thought was that was an interesting example of the origin of something and how the basic form of human, which is what Socrates is saying, has to do with observation, opope, that, that word. So that was an example, I think, maybe just to tie to what you just said, Jose. So thank you for, for raising that. And we'll go to Michael and then Victor. Going back to the sort of the question of whether an elite or a rule maker sets names or more broadly, it's by general usage. It occurs to me it's probably a conversation between both. On one hand, you have elites who are in the form of academics, powerful leaders, famous people, etc., who, through their discourse, help form a specific name for something. But at the same time, you also have general usage pushing back and making its own definitions. For instance, in the podcast you linked in the listing for this, the change in the meaning of impact and taking over from the word effect. 
Yeah, that, that's an, that was an interesting point. I, I thought that, and actually, when I was I was talking to Darren about this a few weeks ago, I think, and he raised the idea that maybe the word impact came about from advertising. You know, maybe it was uh, advertisers who thought that that word would be more powerful, and so that word took over. I mean, honestly, it, I hardly ever see the word effect anymore. Impact is used all the time. I mentioned yeah. specifically, maybe it's from like a corporate world. You want to speak forcefully in the corporate, yeah. <laughs> in that yeah. kind of uh, in yeah. that kind of environment. So I, I think what Michael said about the powerful wanting to set one meaning of the word and the general usage of the word maybe being different is, it's an important point. And something I wanted, as I mentioned before, I wanted to talk next episode about the word democracy in particular, because that one's in the news all the time now, you know, that there's a lot of discord on the nature of what democracy is. And maybe, you know, just to give a little bit of preview of that, the way I would approach it is to say, well, democracy is a compound word from the Greek, uh, from demos meaning people and kratia meaning power. But then there's no definition inherent in that of what people and what type of power. And the example that I thought of is until about 100 years ago, women were not allowed to vote in both Canada and the US. But I think both countries to that time still considered themselves to be democracies, even though half of the population, half of the people weren't empowered to vote. And so that's a question of definition. You know? So the idea of power of the people is broad, but then when it's applied in general use at various times, it's very different. I just wanted to raise that so that we can think about that for next time and maybe dive deeper into the meaning of that word democracy and try to understand how we can resolve these differences that arise over time. Because certainly that's a, an ancient word, certainly going back to Plato's time, and it's been used in very, very different ways over the past 2,400 years. So thank you for that. We'll go to Victor. So first I wanted to address the fact that he says that rule setters, he asks Hermogenes, right? So it's in the form of a questioning. He asks if rule setters are equally good in Greece and abroad. And one wonders the degree to which there is some form of Socratic irony in this. And I'm going to return to that idea because it seems to me to be a peculiarly good example of an argument in favor of conventionalism that if there are rule setters that are equally good in Greece or in Senegal, there is no natural name to anything, unless if you try to say uh, that a natural name is impossible, unless you say the, the natural name in that language, which itself has in the end no clear foundation and is thus not natural. So I think, so he's saying that the dialectician is the one that can serve as the guide here to the rule setter, to the name maker or the rule setter or lawgiver. Uh, one of the translations of the rule setter is the lawgiver. And what we have here is, I think, is a somewhat rare Socrates in this dialogue. This has been pointed out by others. He usually asks a, a question in a sly way to incite thought. Here he seems to be answering questions in a sly way to incite thought. And I think this in some ways is a philosophical comedy because of that, because they set up Cratylus in this dialogue to be a clownish figure. Why? Because on the one hand, he's a naturalist. On the other hand, he's a radical Heraclitian who says one cannot put one's foot in the same river once. 
because it is not even the same, not, it's not the same river and it's not the same foot. As it moves in, there's a time has to elapse before it enters the river. It's not the same river and it's not the same foot. So Cratylus should naturally be a conventionalist given that he is an even more radical Heraclitian than Heraclitus. So he set up as a clownish figure in this dialogue. And so this alters the nature of Socratic irony because what we think of Socrates as someone who feigns not knowing, but here he feigns knowing. And why does he feign knowing? He feigns knowing to convince the conventionalist of naturalism in part, not entirely. And he feigns knowing to convince the naturalist of conventionalism in part, but not entirely. So what we have is, is a new form of Socratic dialectician here who asks and answers questions slyly to incite thought. This is not the Socrates we're mostly accustomed to, even would-be assertions. So I think that when he starts out by saying that the rule setters are equally good in Greece or abroad, he's mocking his own assertion <laughs> simply to get the conventionalist to accept, in part, the naturalist point of view, as he will do with Cratylus in reverse. I think that that is what we're seeing here. We're seeing something that is um, somewhat unique in Plato. And I would say, just as the sounds, the notion of sound, right, the vocal origins, the one-to-one uh, -one correspondence between the sound and the thing, the word and the thing, just as that is ill-conceived for the most part, the lion's share of the words in any language are not onomatopoeic. His etymology here that you cited in relation to Anthropos is also ill-conceived because, I mean, the scholars, and no one agrees on the origin of Anthropos, but the scholars say that it contains the roots for man and face or appearance. And so what Anthropos means is he who looks like a man. He's coming up with the most complex etymology, and then later on will argue that the complexity itself confirms the etymology. So I think we're getting these new forms of Socratic irony. Mainly the one is that he's feigning knowing to simply alter, to make the conventionalist into a naturalist in part, and make the naturalist into a conventionalist in part. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for that. I hadn't actually thought about that, but you do point out that it does seem to be a rare Socrates in that sense. And it's interesting, as you observe, that Cratylus is used as a bit of a foil, maybe for some of the back and forth. And it is interesting, actually, that Cratylus himself is not brought into the actual dialogue. He's referred to it at the beginning, but he's not actually speaking until the end of the dialogue. So that's an interesting point. And let, let's keep that in mind, certainly, as we continue reading this dialogue. I think that's an important point that we should understand because certainly a lot of the dramatic elements of Plato's dialogues are very important to appreciate in, in terms of what he's trying to say, or at least in terms of the things he's trying to get us to think about. So I think you raised a very good point there. So thank you. And in the time that remains, I thought maybe we could go to 
the first theme that I picked out here from this dialogue, and that's the basic question of what, whether man is the measure of all things, and that's what Protagoras, the, the sophist, was held to say in Plato's dialogue, the Theotetus, that we covered in season one, at the end of season one. And this goes, I think, to the heart of the question of whether there is a timeless, changeless form of a thing maybe if we want to think of the form as a thing is the minimum limits of the thing that distinguish it from anything else, or whether man is the measure of all things, which would mean that humans at different times establish different limits for each word. One of the points I wanted to raise here is one that occurred to me in terms of the historical record that we create with our writing and with our video and our recordings now. If we use different words at different times, or if we use the same word at different times, but we apply different meanings to it at different times, I'm wondering how the historical record will look. Uh, you know, if somebody is looking back uh, on us 500 years in the future, trying to understand what we were saying and what we intended to say, would they understand what we are truly intending to say if the meanings are always changing? And that's just one thought that occurred to me is, is you know, is this argument for a naturalist perspective maybe also an argument for some sort of clarity of our historical record so that we can understand the sequences of cause and effect in time? And so that's one thing that I wanted to, uh, to raise. And maybe just read this one little part here from this section here. So this is covering from 386B to 386E. I won't read the whole thing. It's asking whether wisdom exists. And so Socrates says, what do you hold about such people? Or is it this, the very good are very wise, while the very bad are very foolish? Hermogenes says, yes, that's what I believe. Socrates says, but if Protagoras is telling the truth, if it is the truth that things are for each person as he believes them to be, how is it possible for one person to be wise and another foolish? Hermogenes says, it isn't possible. I just wanted to raise that in the context of, is man the measure of all things? So if if someone says, I know what a certain thing means, and I know how to apply a certain thing, does that make that person right? You know, Because we say that every person has the right to establish their own limits and their own interpretations, or is there a more universal interpretation? And so I think what Socrates is asking here is if the conventionalist type of approach is correct in that we can establish different meanings at different times, does that mean that there is no difference between wisdom and foolishness? That somebody who I think is foolish because they apply the wrong meaning, in their minds, they are wise because they've applied the right meaning. And then who's to say whether you know somebody is foolish or wise? So I just wanted to use that as an example of maybe something that we can discuss if we have time remaining here or just carry on into the next episode in two weeks and bring up that point. But uh, I thought that was an important point here. And it relates again to whether there is kind of a form of the, of the meaning. We'll go to Darren. The stuff about um, knowing whether or whether we can say someone is good or bad. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting because here he is using an ethical moral realm in order to say something about maybe a more metaphysical realm. Um, or practical realm like language usually it's reversed right usually well he always starts Plato always is starting with like technical things like even in the Republic in book one right in order to get through Symmachus to think about justice he talks about shipbuilding again his fame or shoe making and all these other crafts and then he tries to draw analogy with ethics and morality but it's interesting that here he begins there or it's one of the places he begins in order to work his way up to talk about language 
So I actually want to say something, I guess, not maybe not so much responding to, but maybe adding to what Victor had already said about how the Socrates we see here may be kind of uncharacteristic and also how he might be speaking to both Hermogenes and Cratylus in, in this dual manner, both of them in different ways and pulling them in different directions. But then if that's the case, then, you know, what is the point of the dialogue and what's being established? So I think that the ways in which Socrates is the way in which weird things are happening or Socrates seems uncharacteristic in this dialogue to me is what makes this dialogue kind of thrilling, actually. Like I get a thrill reading this dialogue. I, it's like, to me, it's like peak Plato. <laughs> I read, I read like pretty much all the dialogues except maybe like three or four at this point. And it, this is just like bewildering and amazing when I read this. So one of the things that maybe confirms Victor's point is that he says, so actually this is after he talks or maybe just before, before or after in any case, it relates to the uh, um, etymology of humans that James was discussing earlier. So, he, But he says this curious thing. So this is a 3998. This is just before the etymology. This is when he, he launches into it. Just before that etymology, he says, and you're certainly right to have faith in it, by which he means you throws inspiration, which Socrates claims he's being like possessed by. Okay, so, and you're certainly right to have faith in it, you throws inspiration. Indeed, I seem to have had such a clever insight just now that if I'm not careful, I'll be in danger of becoming altogether too wise before the day is out. Okay, Socrates does not say <laughs> he is too wise or, or calls himself clever. This is very uncharacteristically Socrates. So when I read it, I was like, okay, something really weird is going on. And actually, it, it's probably worth just also like, I'll just read this short paragraph. So this is where Euthyphro enters the picture. This is sort of in the midst of the etymologies. This is actually a train of thought about the Zeus and Cronus. And he actually, I thought he actually had a pretty good idea of where those names comes from. But then he says this, this wisdom, which had suddenly come upon me, I do not know from where. So this is at 396D to E. And then about that uh, wisdom that has suddenly come upon him, he says, uh, yes, Hermogenes, and I, for my part, mostly blame Euthyphro of the deem of Prospauta for its coming upon me. I was with him at dawn, lending an ear to his lengthy discussion. He must have been inspired because it looks as though he has not only filled my ears with a superhuman wisdom, but taken possession of my soul as well. So it seems to me that this is what we ought to do. Today, we'll use this wisdom and finish our examination of names. But tomorrow, if the rest of you agree, we'll exorcise it and purify ourselves as soon as we found someone, whether priest or wise man, who is clever at that kind of purification. So something really weird, like this is a wacky dialogue. Something weird is going on here. And of course, we know Euthyphro is a fool, basically. Okay, he's, he's claiming he's possessed by the spirit of a fool here. <laughs> and I guess you, you need to know some Plato background in order to catch this reference, right? So all these etymologies are happening, but then in the midst, he says these weird things, like he's like super wise and he's being possessed by UV Pro. So something weird going on, okay? As lovely as some of these etymologies like really are, some of them are kind of beautiful even, <laughs> we should be careful, right? Even if they sound very convincing, like what is happening here? Um, so I just want to make a quick comment on that, okay? It seems to me some caution is being thrown on the etymological approach. However, he, he started these etymologies after having established what we discussed earlier, that he concludes that Cratylus's naturalism is onto something, it seems. And then he jumps into these etymologies. So what this suggests to me is actually, this is something maybe related to what Victor said earlier too, 
I feel like this dialogue is, is saying something about the significance of language, the importance of it to living well and thinking well. And so there is some connection with naturalism. But I think throughout the dialogue, and Hermogenes actually presents the conventionalist view very succinctly and very well in the beginning, there is also something conventionalistic about language. And I think in this very you know, typical Socratic way, the dialogue is driven by this tension between there is something either naturalistic or we want there to be something naturalistic about language because it is a kind of tool we use, at least that's what the argument is. But there's also very much about language that's conventionalistic. And so we've only read a third of it so far, but I feel like the, di the dialogue is propelled along by this tension. But the way in which it's naturalistic is, I, I personally, I suspect is not the etymological route, although that's one way one might understand naturalism. But this is just one of these like red herrings that you see in all of Plato's dialogues that some great ideas propose, and then like it ends up in this weird dead end or aporia. So far this week, we've established that you know natural both naturalism and conventionalism seem to have something for them. But we're gonna see how these combat one another throughout, and we'll, maybe we'll have some sort of more reflective view of how language is both realistic and conventionalist by the end of it. Well, thank you for that observation. I, I think it is interesting the way you said that, you know, there is something conventionalist in language. And I think that's something certainly, you know, as I think of the word impact, which the example was brought up earlier, um, certainly convention has adopted that as kind of the default word for effect now. So there is definitely convention that's in use. And I wonder, you raised that quote from 396E and that word, purification. And I'm wondering if somehow that's Plato or Socrates trying to say that somehow we need to reconcile the natural origin of words to the conventions that we use in those words so that we truly understand the nature of the thing that we're talking about in these complex ideas that we're exchanging. So very interesting perspective. And, and we just have, you know, maybe about five or six minutes, I think, left here. So we'll go to Victor and then Jeff. Okay, so this whole notion of Pythagoras, man is the measure of all things, uh, can be related to the question of democracy. I don't want to go so, uh, too far outside of this, but because you mentioned democracy. And I would say that this is the height of the naive understanding of a democracy in which man is the measure of all things. You then contrast this with the notion of the forms, the timeless changes form of the thing, but you say that it has a minimum limit. So how could you define the minimum limit of the form? Uh, how do you arrive at the essence of the thing or to any degree, even a minimum essence through modern phenomenology is one way in philosophy and in the sciences. But the problem with man is the measure of all things is that what you end up in the naive idea or even ideal of democracy is this, that democracy is a realm of pure opinion. And opinion has no value when it is not rooted in something which is falsifiable. An opinion that is based on fact, on data, on varied data sets that are testable, that are analyzable, it has a higher chance of being true, but it's not necessarily true but it has a far higher chance of being true. But then once you end up with your analysis of the facts, data, 
and varied data sets, you have to make a judgment on your analysis. And that judgment may be uh, wrongful. And this is why we have science, which is this unfolding process, a flux of becoming, and which is constantly being uh, revised. It's revising itself. A good scientist doesn't settle even for the most accepted view, keeps an open mind for the new possibilities, and is always testing and retesting the ideas. So you mentioned democracy as being perhaps for you, and I would agree, until you get to universal suffrage, it has no meaning. In the US, here's what makes the, the, the use of the word democracy quite absurd. In the first election in the US, less than 2% of the citizens of the US had the right to vote. It was 3% in Great Britain at the time. It wasn't yet the UK. It was 3%. It was less than 2%. Six of the states did not vote. And we refer to this as the initiation of democracy and de democratic elections. But here's the reason that universal suffrage is not democratic, because universal suffrage is attained pretty much between 1894 in New Zealand and, and around 1930 in Britain. There's a few exceptions. France is a little later. Greece is a little later. But I'm talking about the West here. But here's the problem. As they're attaining universal suffrage, they're ruling over a billion human beings in the global south who have no vote. They have no rights of any kind. So the notion of democracy that the West peddles to itself is a splendid fiction that does not apply to reality. And it's never questioned. There's a million other ways to critique the notion of democracy. But that's just the basic formal one. Then when universal suffrage is achieved in the global south, the democracies are hollow democracies since the IMF, which is essentially ruled over by the US, Britain, and Germany, they have the controlling shares, banking shares at the IMF, more or less predetermine the political economy of the so-called democracies in the global south. They at least shape it, if not predetermine it. So democracy is a hollow idea that is peddled by the West to itself and to the world about its genuine nature. It has no basis in reality. You raise some interesting points you know, about the very low percentage of people who had initially the right to vote, which actually I didn't realize it was that low. I think words like democracy can become very loaded, and certainly at times like now, where you know maybe they are being subject to manipulation by sophists. Some people might say democracy is a process. Other people might say democracy is an outcome, for example, of one of the very basic differences. And so maybe that's where we need to go back to some sort of form of the word and understanding the two components of the word demos and kratia, people and power, and understanding what's truly meant by it. So we avoid that confusion. And let's explore what you have raised, Victor, and, and the other thoughts about democracy that people want to bring to the table in our next meeting, because I think that's a very good example of how words and meanings can become confused or at least change over time. And I think that's that's very important. And, and it's a good example. And if anybody else can think of other examples, I'm happy to entertain them. So I appreciate that. And we'll wind up with Jeff. And after Jeff, I'll, I'll just conclude the session and uh, we will invite people to stay online for an unrecorded session afterwards if you want to. So Jeff. Yeah, I'm thinking of Darren's comments. Yeah, the uh, Hewitt's int introduction talks a lot about that contest between naturalism and uh, conventionalism with respect to 
language. I just wanted to speak. This is probably good that I'm last because it's just a, a, a nod to maybe what to look for in the rest of the dialogue. I'm not, not very confident that we're going to find it, but I don't think there really needs to be a choice between naturalism and conventionalism because what is man but the natural animal that establishes conventions for itself? Other, other animals don't do this because they don't have language is the way I would go further mm -hmm. with that. I don't think we're going to get that, but if we have that in mind, we can see maybe points where they're going to miss it, or, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe he does figure it out, and it, but it's only in some sort of coded, oblique form. Certainly the question that you asked, you know, does there need to be a choice between a natural and conventionalist uh, is a very interesting question that we should come back to. And maybe it has to do with what Darren said, maybe, or, or alluded to the need to reconcile both approaches, because I think maybe it's unavoidable that there will be a conventionalist use of language, but then maybe there needs to be also a process of reconciling it back to some sort of universal limit of the meaning of things, particularly as our technology gets so powerful, so very powerful, and our technology is now able to simulate human language, uh, and it's only going to get more powerful. And so we want to make sure that we understand what's happening in those simulations, and that uh, if the simulation is uh, masquerading as a human, that we're able to uncover the falsehood of that uh, masquerade. So I thank everybody for participating and looking very much forward to our next session. I haven't picked the ending point for our next discussion, but I'll, I'll post that shortly. I'll try to get through the next third of the dialogue. And the next third is primarily the origin of words. So I think maybe what we're looking for here is maybe less the, the specifics of the ancient Greek language and how various parts of words came into origin, but maybe just looking for patterns here in the next part uh, and relating it to the major themes that we've discussed today, certainly the idea of rule setting, supervising the rule setter, whether there is a naturalist perspective or a conventionalist perspective in name setting. I think all of these are important points to come back to, and maybe we can look for those patterns in our next part of the reading in roughly the next third of the dialogue. So we'll resume in two weeks to do that, and uh, I wanted to thank everybody for participating. A very good discussion, as always, with some very interesting points that I hadn't thought about before, and uh, I will consider further, I think, as we go into the, the second part. I've made some notes about things I want to follow up on, so very much looking forward to our next discussion in two weeks. And again, thank you, everybody, for participating. I'll end the recording now. Those who would like to stay online for a unrecorded casual discussion called Plato's Cafe, we will stay online for the next half hour and look forward to speaking to everybody in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you.